to our listeners in the U.S., our three in Germany, and the one person tuning in from Singapore, we are back and here to discuss predictions for the 2022 season, as well as break down the keys to our offense and defense, all while giving you expert insights free of charge. Also, RIP Punt John Punt. Anyway, here's the show. Welcome to the quarry. This is the first Anokin podcast presented to you unofficially by Hinkle's Hamburgers. All right, boys. 17 days. 17 days till uh, kickoff of the 2022 season. I'm excited. I know you are. How are we feeling? We've got we've got Friday night lights to start us off into a holiday weekend. There's nothing better to think about a long weekend if that long weekend starts with a win. Starts one and few, few a better ways to start off Labor Day well. weekend than a forty two point win against the Illini. I'm I'm uh I'm hopeful, Kurt. Oh, as we said before, as I said before, technical difficulties arrived. I'm feeling all emotions. I'm pumped. We're back. Football's freaking back. IU football's back. Tom Allen's back. And, you know, watching football games at the quarry is back. So what's not to be excited about? We got basically an entire new facelift of a team. So... So many new things going on this year that, you know, you kind of have to go to the best source of IU football, which is us, to get your best predictions. The number one most accurate source with insider IU football information. But Kurt, excellent point. You are correct. Um, after a, let's call a spade a spade, tough year last year. Um, quite the facelift. Absolutely. Minor setback for a major Quite comeback. Lift on this roster and coaching staff. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see some new things play out. We don't even know who's going to be for sure starting at quarterback week one yet. Um, what are what are some specific roster adjustments, coaching adjustments that you guys are excited for? I think for, you know, for me, I think almost every question, at least 90% of my questions and probably everyone's start with the offense. Um, The only continuity is arguably the maligned offensive line from last year returning. I'd say, I'd probably say Three and a half starters. Bedford, Haggard, and Caddick and Carpenter had their kind of spot duty and rotation. Um, you know, to be seen. And then obviously the um you know, much ballyhoed retention of Darren Hiller. Um, you know, whether that was the purported cost saving measure um as they brought in their uh Waltz and Wilts and Adam Henry and uh, uh, Craig Johnson. Craig, what's his last name? Johnson. That's the guy. Uh, running backs coach. Um, so I think you know they're they certainly need to improve. And Allen's talked about it multiple times. O line, you know, not only. Are they looking to get better of the offseason? Off He's made it explicitly clear that they have to. Um, but I think, you know, jury is 100% going to be out on, one, whether any of those players have more of a ceiling to tap into, particularly guys like Bedford and Haggard, who seem to be a little bit more of known commodities. 
And then two, you know, some of the younger guys they need to develop, um, you know, notably Josh Sales, Quill Benson, DJ Moore. Um, you know, you can even go down into some of the, you know, Tim Weaver, you know, one, are and do any of those guys just have the skill set to be able to be developed into Big Ten starters? And two, if they do, is Hiller a guy that can bring it out of them? And is that to a point where it can, you know, hopefully push some of those like guys like Caddick and Carpenter to earn their spot? Because I think, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, and I think you see it across the rest of the depth chart of competition really brings out the best. And you look at what, you know, over the years at O-line, they just simply haven't had a lot of the depth to really push, you know, what was probably the best four or five guys that they could throw out there at the time. Um, and I think, so I, you know, that's a cause for concern probably that that's all that's retaining, but at the same time, some level of consistency of like communication across that O-line, you know, I think is, is a good thing when you can look to the guy you're left and right and you know, you know, the checks and you know, you know what the, how the scheme is ran. I think that helps from an implementing, you know, your kind of your run system um, but I think, you know, everything else is for better or for worse, a lot of question marks, um, starting at the top with Walt, um, and then you trickle all the way down through the position coaches, um, and you trickle all the way down through the roster, um, all the way from quarterback, running back, wide receiver. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't know last year's roster um you know it wouldn't really matter because it's almost no no returning production like it, it really is a a blank slate which may be good um but it's a also you know kind of a black box um so those are some of the first things i'm looking at primarily I on the offense bring up a question i had just because you mentioned his name earlier dj moore the uh the few like obviously nothing is set in stone yet but the few like depth charts predictive depth charts that we have seen i haven't seen his name anywhere on those he is the highest rated offensive line prospect we've ever had and we all know our offensive line was not great last year i for one was surprised to not see his name anywhere on those I didn't see him anywhere on there either. Um, and if I'm I'm not mistaken, the other guy who wasn't, maybe he was listed second string was um, Josh Shales, who I'm fairly certain was the second highest rated offensive line recruit we've ever had. Um, they did have him at backup left tackle behind Haggard. Actually, now that I'm looking at it. But it does, I think, to like the argument of like how well are they developing their players it says something if their elite talent can't push you know seemingly substandard starters at important positions but it's also one where you know the learning curve and the physical style of the league you know it's it's probably a little bit hard but um I agree I think you'd like to see see something out of some of those guys, um, I mean, moving a little bit more back to skill positions, because you, you talk about, you know, some of the people they haven't mentioned and some of the people they have mentioned. I think that's a lot of the tea leaves that you can read into this offseason. I've been, I don't know if I'm surprised or confused. They talk a lot about Dexter Williams. They do kind of talk a lot about Dexter Williams. Which <laughs> I don't know what to think about. You know, I mean, I, I had kind of written them off um, for a while. And, uh, you know, it's certainly, I don't know if it's them deflecting from some of the other positions and in competition that's going on. Um, I'm of the camp or presumption that Basil is going to start. I think probably no question. I think they've given... Tuttle every chance to keep the job, but I think he's also 
you I think you know what a ceiling is, and I think it's it's not going to get you to. And it's a very almost Jimmy Garoppolo style quarterback of like he can kind of run, he can kind of make some throws, might win you a game, but he's not going to elevate your your team. And I think once again it's a bit of a black box, but Baselook has some level of production in the SEC, which I think lends itself to saying, you know, hey, we got to see what we have. He's a former SEC freshman of the year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He was. was. Um, Back to Dexter. Do you think Donovan McCauley getting moved out to wide receiver has anything to do with that? I don't have a great read on what happened with McCauley, and I don't know if it's because, you know, I've only seen what's been reported and in the interviews, which has been very, like, official of, you know, everyone kind of taking the high road to an extent of, I think it was maybe this week in the past two or three days, McCauley said he's always felt like he should have been a receiver. And he only played quarterback through high school because functionally he was the best athlete. And he he may have been the best route runner at LN, which, you know, I don't know what that says about Omar. But um, he basically just said he was too good at everything else that they had to get the ball in his hands. And the best way to do that was to put him at quarterback. Which, um, I mean, you do see in high school sometimes of just like, you know, if you put that good of a player at wide receiver, you can – kind of minimize that player's impact and you got to find ways to get your, you know, your, your star players, the ball and that's that quarterback. But I don't know if that's just him saying the right things. I wouldn't have thought Dexter was an impediment to him moving because I think either way, if you stared, if you weren't Basilic or Tuttle, you're saying, Hey, I'm probably three. And I think the difference between QB three and QB four in a college program is pretty marginal. But you'd have to ask Grant Grimmel that. Excellent point, yeah. <laughs> He'd argue it's very important. Man, the uh, I feel like I've seen a lot of positive stuff coming up about McCauley at wide receiver. Like, he's he's going to get some run this year. So there might be something to that, in all honesty. It, it appears that Walt is a, almost... I don't want to say platoon because I don't think he has like set trios, for example, that it's, you know, Hey, he's, it's gotta be these three. And then you do a full, full line change for the next three, but he seems to want to rotate a lot of the guys. And yeah, I think, you know, the, this positive spin on that is, um, you know, you just keep a lot of fresh, fresh people out there. Um, I think the one thing I wonder is if it means no one separated themselves. Cause I think at some point just for chemistry purposes, like a quarterback's got to have their guy and that guy's got to be out there. Um, you know, the only returner DJ Matthews hasn't necessarily proven to be durable, at least his time in Bloomington, you know, to be seen how full speed he is the first probably month of the season. Um, and so then it's, you know, you look across the presumed top of the depth chart. There's no one that has any chemistry with the quarterback. The only returners, Swinton and the whole Bennett, didn't ever play with presumed starter base look. And then you've got Camper, Zip Simmons, Anderson Kobe, and McCullough. McCulley. So where... Where those reps go, I'm not certain. In a totally new scheme, totally new quarterback, it's basically fair game on someone to step up. I think, which I actually like, I think schematically, I saw Walt really focuses on find grass. Like he's told receivers, like the routes aren't like necessarily set in stone. Like it's a bit of more of a feel of fine space and it's the quarterback's job 
to get it to you in that space. Like I think, you know, our receivers, I feel like historically haven't been great at separating. Like when you look at Freifogel, not known for his separation. Miles Marshall wasn't known for his separation. Um, I mean, you even go way further back, like guys like DeMarlo Belcher, like Westbrook, like none of those guys were like separation guys. Yeah, Simi Cobb, like they were just like, you run a slant or a fade or a post and might be able to get by you, but they'll catch it over you. I think the skill set of this group is a little bit more. I think Walt wants to put pressure on you by getting the ball to athletes in space. I think if I were to, to go off of that, I think that bodes well for Emory Simmons. I think it bodes well for DJ Matthews. I think it potentially bodes well for McCauley as a size speed guy where, you know, he might be able to bully some of the smaller corners and he might be able to beat the linebackers. Um, and then I, I'm not sure though, I don't, from limited, you know, views on Swinton and Holt Bennett, they weren't huge separators. They seemed more of the old school, which don't know if that's their athletic profile or just what they were asked to do. Um, and then I, don't know a ton about Anderson Kobe or, or Cam Camper, but I, I do think they fall a little bit into the ladder of boundary receivers um, who potentially, you know, if, if they're not able to separate a ton, might lose some snaps to those other guys, if I were to hypothesize. Yeah, it is. It's going to be very interesting with the whole wide receiver. I mean, like you said, Swinton and Holtman are the only ones coming back who I think have seen the field at wide receiver. And Matthew's pre-injury. Yeah, um, catch that. But, like, Anderson Kobe, I think he played one game for Tennessee last year. Cam Camper was in junior college last year. Something like, like that. These guys coming in that will be, like, two of our top four receivers in all likelihood. And McCauley, probably our top five receivers. Like, we've never seen them play receiver at the college level. No, no. I mean, they're they're truly a, a black box, and I think, you know, then you wonder, you know, there's there's no more snaps to go around after that. But almost to your point, along like Demon Moore and in the development of some of the higher rated recruits, I think another concerning guy is Jaquez Smith. Yeah. Like one of I, I, he might have been the highest rated recruit ever before Dasan. Yeah. I think he was the highest in that class, at least. And he redshirted last year. So, but it's another one where you're saying, hey, there's there's no proven production. It's a clear free-for-all with a blank slate, new coordinator, you know. And he hasn't, he hasn't established himself at all. And I, I think if you look longer term at the program... And, you know, a lot of people's concern is like all their momentum stalled on, you know, from building a program from the recruiting, the development side. I almost wonder if the larger concern is that like, hey, that we've gotten guys here. But if they can't get those guys to end up producing anything for them, I think then you have a really hard time going out to recruits and saying, look at what we're doing. Because they can just point to them to say, you know, look at the top talent. Like, you guys haven't been able to do anything with them. Um, I think, because I, I do want to eventually go to a bit more of a, a macro perspective on the program. Because I think one point that should be made about the positive is that the depth of the program is so much deeper than it was, like, in three years ago, five years ago. Like I was, I was combing through some depth charts actually a couple of years ago to find some names, and I don't mean this in a bad way towards any of these people, but like, you used to go down the depth chart, and you know, second string was people like, at corner was Ben Bach, if you remember him, he was a long-haired corner, Nate Hoff at D line, Nate Hoff had a motor, or something. His jersey was like in the seventies, but uh, Mike Barwick, Jacob Robinson. Like some of these guys that, you know, they were fine. They produced some level, but they they were never going to move the needle for a program. They were 
fringe three-star guys who worked hard and, and didn't, you know, whatever, but they weren't, that's who we had as like the core of the roster. And if you look at the core heart of the roster, if you took like an average, you know, it's, it's people who either were high three, four-star recruits, or they transferred in from places with also a bit of previous production at those schools. And they were also established schools. I think, you know, a lot of times some of our transfers, you know, your Jeremy Finches, your Camion Patricks, your Luke Timians, you know, just to name some guys, um, they either had very limited production at larger schools, if not no production, or they had a lot of production in a community college or JUCO or like a really small school. And I think one encouraging sign is the rosters now, you know, people competing for starting jobs are people who produced at SEC, ACC, Pac-12 schools, or they are three and four star recruits who, if they had been signed three years previously, they would be expected to start right now. And they're not. And I look, you know, kind of getting ahead of myself even a little bit, but you you touched on like your demon more on the defensive side. Nick James was like a late signee from IMG, very highly rated. He's not on the two deep at all because you've got, it's arguably one of the deepest positions on the team, if not the deepest of CO to Marcus Elliott, the two Ole Miss transfers, Tevis is going to rotate inside. Like this is a guy though, who if he's your sixth defensive tackle, like, that looks like a deep Big Ten defensive tackle rotation that this program has not seen. I think, you know, when you go to, hey, this team needs to be like competitive and in practice and push each other to be better. If your roster is composed of people like that versus, you know, your two and three star guys who a couple years ago, that was that was your average player. Like you would think there's a natural higher floor. Yeah. For the program that's been established and i think that has been lost on a lot of fans who have immediately written off and said you know 2020 is a blip we're back in 2019 2018 but passively the composition of the roster looks drastically different even if the path to getting there and the results with it have not necessarily been correlated i think it is a markedly different team. And I think that can't Agreed. be Agreed. I think the depth is striking. I, I think a good point, too, though. Keep going, Kurt. Go ahead, Dank. Oh, I was just going to say, the point to make is, like, people act like we were struggling in 2019, like we were just such a bad team. We had eight wins, in my opinion, nine wins if you include – you know, losing to a team that paid its players that beat us by one um, in a freak of a game. So, you know, people are acting like we just, you know, know, we had over 30 injuries last year. What team is going to, you know, have a good season when they have 30 injuries across the board? Our fifth string QB went went in against Ohio State. You know what? What are what much? What are you going to do about that? Alabama's fister and QB isn't going to do anything against Ohio State. You know why do people think that? Like, you know, yeah, last year sucked, but it's not like we, you know, went out there, had a full team every game, and played, you know, full strength and gave it our all, and still got blown out by fifty. You know, we had the the walk ons playing against five stars. It's you know, it, it kind of relates to back to just the injuries point of we're also way deeper across the board. You know, we have, what, four QBs actually have game experience now? Um, I think four, three. Yeah. Still more than last year. Um, and we it's have an up-and-comer in Dex. True, four. So it, it's that's a just a point to look at, and then also, I 
this is my hot take too. It's just already diving in the hot takes for me is I think we see more out of McCauley this year at the receiver than a lot of people expect. You know, I might be looking more into it than I should, but like, you know, McCauley's excited. Everything we, you guys were talking about earlier and I, you know, reading up on more of the stuff is he is excited to be a receiver. He's built like an animal. He's an, we know he's a really good athlete. I think we'll see more production out of him than we expect. Uh, you know, Walt's the kind of guy who doesn't, he didn't give much at his, you know, press conference when we hired him, but he's not set on anything with offense. It, it can be anything. I think the other thing that helps McCauley is he knows how a quarterback thinks. He knows if a guy starts scrambling, he knows where that quarterback's going to want his receiver. You know, he, I think there's going to be some nuances, especially if Walt's scheme is less like you're running a seven-yard hitch and it's more you got to get open. I think McCauley would understand, you know, where the, the holes in the zone are likely to be and where a quarterback's looking, where he is in his progression, if he has to roll out. Like, I think he could find himself in a bit of a an offense like that a little bit easier than maybe some of those receivers who've never been asked anything outside of run this route. Because I do think some guys will struggle with that. That is an interesting point, quarterback mind in a wide receiver body, how that operates. But I want to circle back to kind of going back to the uh, transfer portal, David, kind of what you were talking about. I don't remember what the final rankings were, but we were like top 10 in the country for transfer portal recruiting this summer or this offseason. We're bringing in a former SEC freshman of the year, last year third team All-Pac-12 two other SEC four stars, like that's not a normal thing for IU, especially coming off a two and 10 season, like kind of going to the macro picture of things. Like, I know it's easy to look at last year and be like eight and four, six and two seasons. Like the momentum's kind of derailed. I'm not sure if it is yet. Best recruiting class we've ever had is still here. Best transfer portal. Obviously, we've ever had, but one of the top 10 in the nation is here. Like, there is still a lot of momentum behind this program. And I think it is super beneficial for us to have I think low expectations another... again. I, I think even building off of your, I completely agree. I think also speaking to the momentum, I think when Alan talks about his culture of accountability, the fact that he said within 24 hours of Purdue, he had like six guys in his locker room or in his office that had like a presentation basically ready saying, this is what went wrong. This is how we're going to fix it. And this is what we want to be held accountable to. And this is how we're going to do it. I think that speaks volumes too about guys who's, you know, these guys didn't quit on the program. Like they believe in what Allen's building. I think and I think a lot of that was led on the defensive side, which it's hard to say a lot, but it seems like the Charlton Warren era was a complete and utter disaster from functionally day one. I think it says that because of the way the players approached this year, the amount of them that came back. And I think it also because of the way Allen wants to step in again, more hands-on. I think if Allen felt very comfortable about the defense he would have let someone come in and call plays. I think he definitely wants his hands back on it. Um, and I think the players are very receptive to that. But I, I, I completely agree about the momentum. I don't think it's gone, but I think it's certainly a pivotal year certainly to is. retain it. Certainly is. We cannot have another 2-10, and 3-9 and nine season, anything like that. Tom Allen can't, frankly. No. no. I mean, we we talked a lot about offense. We can move to defense in a second, but I think we'd be remiss if I think, you know, I think at one point we might talk about X factors, but I think there's two people on this offense we haven't mentioned at all who could be very big X factors, and that's one for me, AJ Barner, and two, I think Jalen Lucas. Um, what on Barner? 
Um, I think I jumped the gun on him a little bit last year. I was, I think I was early to the party. If you, if someone listened back on our first podcast last year, I think I had him as my breakout player of the year. And we didn't get there, and that's fine because Peyton Hendershot had a wonderful career, and the quarterback stuff was derailed. But I'm willing to go out on the limb and say that I think Barner could be the best tight end the program's ever seen. You apply really? to my best friend Ted Bolzer right now. <laughs> I with with all due respect to to Ted Bolzer, to Ian Thomas, to Peyton Hendershot, I, I think Barner could blow the doors off the record books. I think when you look at athletic, his frame, his size, like he's a complete, complete mismatch. He has the speed. Um, I think he is primed for a, a massive, massive year. Um, and then on on Jalen Lucas, um, you know, I, I was a little skeptical on his size when he signed and little gimmicky gadgety. But, I mean, when you talk about a spread offense, trying to put pressure on a defense, prioritizing getting the ball in someone's hands who can make you miss – this guy fits that mold. Like, you know, this, this team has not seen, you gotta look, look at his highlight tape on, you know, Twitter. It went viral of him just literally shaking 25 dudes over the course of like three minutes on routes. Definitely seems like the kind of guy that could very easily be used just as like utility offensive player. I think he's everything they wanted David Ellis to be. Um, you know, they, they always talked about moving him across the backfield in the slot, trying to find the best matchup for him and, you know, just could never really stay healthy. But one, I think Lucas is twice as like agile and shifty as Ellis is and just as fast. So I, I'm pretty interested to see how they use him. Now we all are, so, are also notorious for saying that a lot of these players are going to be in our rotation and then they never don't most notably last year mccall ray if anyone remembers that comment from alan i think the statement literally was just mccall ray will play for us on saturdays this year and then he he i don't even think he uh ever broke a sweat on a saturday um so we will see but I, i think you know that those kind of i think you know someone like a Anderson Kobe is more at risk of someone who they they mention a lot about in the fall or late summer and then doesn't see as much playing time but um no I I I think when you look at I think the whole key to the season is going to be how the offense performs I think and gels I think the defense is pretty known commodity I feel comfortable about its ceiling and its floor I think you know whether this team can get to a bowl game is going to be whether all these transfers can gel and whether Walt's system clicks. And I think two players that outside of Bazelik, he's the number one X factor in all of this outside of the scheme. But I think two players who will help them separate that is going to be Barner and uh, Lucas. Let's uh, we've, we've talked about the offense quite a bit. Want to move to the defensive side of the ball. Um, Chad Wilt taking over the defense. A lot of turnover. A lot of faces coming back. However, a lot of talent coming back. Think about Tijuan Mullen, Jalen Williams, Devin Matthews. All these guys have had all Big Ten honors. Um, a lot of injuries last year. Transfers coming in. J.H. Tevis was, I believe, Is third team all Pac-12 last year. There's a lot of talent there this year. Is the defense more talented on paper this year than last year? Uh, I think it's close. I'm not sure I would say yes. Take out McFadden. If you take out McFadden, absolutely. If you take out McFadden. You take out McFadden and you take out Reese Taylor. And... um, whatever your thoughts were on the limited two games of Jaron Handy. 
But I mean, you you think it's better? I'll say I think it's better. I think it's you, there's an argument that. to be had. Certainly, I do. I think it is the deepest front seven I have ever seen. And that's on the that, second level probably, as well, even without That's McFadden. probably no doubt about it, honestly. I think, no that's, I think no, that's, on, that's a, a fact. on a complete basis, top to bottom, that front seven is rebuilt in a way that is geared to be able to stop the run in the Big Ten. Your question has always been whether they can get to the passer, and that I still have a little bit of questions on. I don't know if they have the super explosive bendy edge guys yet. I think they'll have to get a little creative on some blitzes still. But I think that is a, a rugged front seven that you can rotate guys and stay fresh and feel comfortable and confident that you're not just going to have people gashing you over and over again. Definitely agree. Um, thinking about the linebacker core. Who do you think is going to be your biggest production, though, on the D-line? That's because, I mean, you look at last year, we just didn't get to the QB. We didn't. Um, you know, you can say some of that was our D-line, you know, mixed with some injuries. And then also, you know, the shit show that was Warren. But... Yeah, I'm just what who do you think guys think is gonna be that person in the year? You're just like John Henry Tevis. I am very excited about this man. Um Yeah. I didn't know it was John Henry, but that makes all the sense though. Um, oh but automatic transfer. I mean, he was a performer last year for Cal Berkeley. Um he seems to me like the guy who has the athletic makeup to be someone who should be able to consistently get to the quarterback. He's fairly explosive for someone who will likely be playing D tackle. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about him. Um, but I do want to mention this while I have a chance. There has been so much positive chatter about Bo Robbins this off season former Carmel Greyhound great that I'm almost inclined to just say his name. That he's yes. your, the breakout player on the front seven? That I... He's so going to see the I, I would... Before I get into more this year's... He'll see the field. I think... Last year's problem was like Ryder Anderson's playing D-end and Ryder was a great run blocker or run stuffer he's not good at rushing the passer he is your typical strong side end who's almost more suited inside on a passing down i think um so they had him they had james head who always seems to be this tantalizing maybe sort of could be a six sack guy if he figures it out but people have said that now for probably three years, and he hasn't. Now they say it's he's had his best offseason again ever with, with Lance Bryant, who's next to be mentioned, two guys who, to be honest, if you looked at the production, I think Lance Bryant was our most effective pass rusher last year, which is kind of sad, all things considered. Um, and as I think it's most likely to be, he will be usurped in production, from a pass rush perspective, by Miles Jackson, by potentially Desan McCullough. And I do think, given the depth they have, and I, I read that uh, Paul Randolph's been doing a lot of cross-training with those linemen, as in he, he'll, he'll move some of those outside guys in, he'll move some of those inside guys out. Um, I think that gives them a lot of optionality to... And I, I said this at one point on Twitter, but I think you're going to see people like a Tevis inside on passing downs, but outside on rundowns because they've got big beef with CO, Demarcus Elliott, and the Ole Miss duo to handle rundowns on the inside. I think you can get away with Tevis as a strong side end on a running down with 
a Lance Bryant or a head, James Head maybe even potentially as your bull on a rundown, like an obvious rundown. And then I think as you go into passing situation, and Bo Robbins, uh, I think in a passing situation, could slide inside with a Tevis. But I think um, in passing downs, you're going to see Miles Jackson a lot. And I think you're going to see less of, you know, some of those. Um, someone's going to be the odd man out of James Head and Lance Bryant. I think at the expense of Miles Jackson is going to be too good to keep off the field. Um, Casey Teagarden could not stop talking about him all spring. Um, it seems like Lance and Head have, you know, made it much more of a competition. Um, but I think the talent of, of Miles and I think Dasan as well. I think they want to find ways to get those guys into the lineup. And I think that's going to be on third downs where, you know, if McCullough's out there, you feel comfortable if he has to call off a blitz and go guard a running back or a tight end probably in a zone. You can't do that with a Lance Bryant or a James Head. So I think you're going to see more of your Miles Jacksons, Desan McCullough's, um, out there on the passing downs with some of those smaller DNs and D tackles or bigger DNs and smaller D tackles inside on the pass downs, which I think if you can get production from the inside is massive. Um, and Demarcus Elliott actually is a fairly solid pass rushing interior D line. He's no Jerome Johnson. Jerome Johnson was an incredible D tackle pass rusher, but, um, I, I think the pass rush is going to be probably the biggest question for the defense outside of the health. Of the health center. is certainly important, but I think it is interesting, just you talking about all that, the amount of playable guys we have in the front seven is going to allow us to experiment with a lot of different looks. And I think that in the long run bodes very well for us. And it's it, it, again, right. it's people who have production. Outside of the Samoa, you know, even with Jaron Handy last year, it was a lot of like tantalizing, like, look at what he could be, like really high four star at Auburn who, you know, never figured it out. And obviously just never figured it out here. But like James had been around the block, Lance Bryant been around the block, Miles Jackson had some like played a lot of football for UCLA, um, Tevis, like very long production at Cal, like these guys have experience. And I think that, you know, a lot of people did end up discounting the transfers, you know, if they couldn't play somewhere else, like they come to IU, but I, I, don't, I don't think, think this is, is quite that situation. Um, you know, the, the Ole Miss guys, maybe they didn't play a ton last year. Um, uh, but Tevis was literally PAC 12 honorable mention all conference. He is a grad transfer coming. Like, this isn't just the normal transfer. This is a guy who's going to step in on the first day and be one of our better defensive defensive players. I, I think it. I think he's a different style player, but I think its impact could be very similar hmm. to like a Weston Kramer last year. Weston Kramer was a very underrated D lineman for us last year, in my opinion. I thought he was very disruptive. I think you know, a little bit under the radar of the transfer. Like if you were to ask the average to more informed IU football fan to name three to five transfers this year, they would name Baselick, Shivers, um, probably Zip Simmons. And then they, you know, by then you may have run out of names for them already, but Miles Jackson and Justin, you focus on those offensive skill guys. I think Tevis is one that can't be overlooked. Agreed 100%. So I agree. All right. How do we feel about moving on, looking at the upcoming schedule, giving our listeners an accurate representation of what we can expect this year? How do we think we're going to do, though, on the defensive play calling, though? Like, how do we feel about that going into this year? I think they're going to be more aggressive. I think – you're going he Allen talked a lot more about returning to almost an instinctive kind of like 
play the ball and go 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 make turnovers and wreak havoc. If you remember the Kane Womack, you know, kind of havoc swarm defense that wasn't what Charlton tried to do. Um, you know, Charlton, I think for what he was, my understanding limited was it was a bit more of a technician, like refined defense of you know the nuances of schemes and zones and mismatches. And it was less like go play football. And I think Allen, to some extent, wants to kind of let those guys loose a bit and trust their instincts. And I think given the experience across it, I have every reason to trust that. You know, you can go tell Cam Jones, Aaron Casey, you know, CO, you can tell Monster, you can tell Bryant Fitzgerald, go play football. Those guys have all played together for four years. Like they know each other. They know their roles. They know what to do. I think they were thinking too much last year and that when you think you're not playing the ball, you know, you get teams just took advantage of that. And I think, I think they're going to be more aggressive, which I think players like too. I think the aggressive style from Kane Womack pre Charlton Warren, I mean, that was, that was big for us because we'd be aggressive kind of and don't break to some extent, force some turnovers and like, that wins you games. If we can just. And ag- aggressive is absolutely how you flip, right. flip some of those Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State matchups. Right. You get three turnovers and you hope you're in Give the ball game in the fourth quarter. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't. I, I, you know, maybe now you can, but I think the argument is when, when you're going up against loaded five-star rosters, you can't play complacent you've got to try to make them uncomfortable and the easiest way to do that is be aggressive be ball hawking and you know apply pressure all right how do we feel about a little schedule preview we can do that because i may need a separate podcast about the secondary we could probably do an entire hour podcast on the secondary We'll, we'll, we'll try to cut this at an hour so we can retain yeah. some listeners for the, the following episode. Client retention. That's what we're all about here. Okay. All right. Opening game. Illinois. Friday Night Lights. I, uh, Are we doing I, tour I predictions? You guys. I or is that a, a later episode? Are we are we gonna take a step back and I, go season? I think we should go season prediction. I I can go ahead. My my hot take. I've 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 told many many people this who will probably be listening. I think five and one going into Michigan at home is not as crazy as the average fan would lead you to believe. Um, and actually, I, I actually feel a little bit um, justified in that. I listened to the Mind Your Banners with Osterman and Dobrak today. And they also said, your bowl destiny will be decided by November, which if you look at the schedule, you know, that kind of a, lines up and it's true 100%. But I think Illinois at home, I think one, get a conference win in your belt. You didn't do it last year. Kind of shake that boogeyman a little bit. It's an easy one. I think there's going to be still a lot of, you know, fresh turnout of fans um, under the lights at night. I think those players got a chip on their shoulder. I like us. So I, I think then you, know, you presumably should assume 3-0 and with, with at Cincinnati and at Nebraska. Since both Cincinnati fringe top 25. Nebraska, I don't, I don't know where they have them in the polls. Maybe at no, they aren't. Um, no, I, I didn't know if they were like 32nd or. But, um, and this is where, you know, maybe a stretch to say you split them. A lot of people would say both losses. But I think about that Cincinnati game in particular. I think about the way it went down last year. Huge turning point for the season. I think that's one that a lot of people probably have circled on their calendar. Um, right. And Cincinnati loses almost all of its production. 
Um, almost all. I think, you know, they've still got people there. I'm not going to write them off completely. But they lost at least 12 to 14 starters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they're, and we're their first test, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then I look at Nebraska. One, I think we always play Nebraska very well. And even in Lincoln in particular, we tend to play very well. And then I also look at, you know, you never know if this is on the minds of players, but uh, there's a very good chance if, if IU wins, Scott Frost gets fired. And I think that's a very fun possibility. And you talk about something that just like adds a little bit of fuel to the fire for one, the players, but gives the program some mojo. If, you know, let's just say you do lose in, in Cincinnati. If you go into Lincoln, beat Nebraska, get Scott Frost fired, and you are five and one with Michigan coming to town, you're riding hot on, you know, Alston a coach, you're feeling good. Like I you know, Nebraska is always tough to predict. I have no clue what they're gonna be. They got a transfer quarterback in from Texas. Um, and they brought in some other dudes, some legit dudes, which I think, you know, he redid his entire staff as well. They basically made him fire his entire staff, if I'm not mistaken. Um and I think the AD almost picked more of the staff than Frost did. Um, or it, was, it was a weird situation. But um, I like those first five games. Oh, we're also, we play them after they have Oklahoma. So maybe they're a little beaten up. Maybe they're, you know, overlooking us. I don't know. Um, so I, I look at... And then you think, you know, what happens to the program if you're five and one? You know, what are people going to be saying then? Are they still going to be talking about how 2020 was a blip? Or are they going to, you know, is that where you really get after two away games? You've got Michigan coming to home. You're five and one. I think you've got people buzzing. You get a packed crowd. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. So after, I'll stop there, though, and I'll say after five and one, I'll move to my season prediction. And I think that's going to be, it would be eight and five. Who are the five losses? I'll go eight and five. And I think a lot of that. Huh? They would be, I mean, this is, I do think we lose at the big house or not the big house, the, the horseshoe. I think we lose at Michigan state in November. I think. We lose to Penn State. We just never play Penn State well. Although we did beat them at home last time. But I don't think they want to lose in Memorial Stadium again. So Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan State. I do think you lose three going into the bucket. Which is why I think it is more important that you get that momentum early in the year. Um, so I think then between... Um, I think you lose one of Cincinnati, Nebraska. And then you you lose one of <laughs> you lose one of Michigan, Maryland, Rutgers. I, I may be miscounting here though, about how many games there are total. There's only 12. So the eighth win would be the bowl. So I'll, I'll say seven and five. Yeah. The eighth, yeah, the eighth win is the uh, citrus bowl in Orlando against um, that would be Colorado. I um I, I like us for eight and four, nine and four with a bowl game victory, nine Windiana. I prophecy foretold. The prophecy foretold. I I think we're gonna be five and zero going into Michigan, which is gonna be incredible. Um, like you said, Cincinnati is returning almost zero production. We are, I would have to pull up their schedule, but I do believe that we are their first, like, Power 5 school. I don't have any faith in Scott Frost or Nebraska. I don't think anyone has any reason to. And we haven't lost in Lincoln in five years. Is that right? Right. Um, I think that's right. So, yeah, the thought of being, like, 5-0 and going into Michigan at Memorial Stadium is super exciting. Um, I think we dropped Michigan, but then you have Maryland and Rutger back to back after that. I think we take both of those 
And then I guess you lose those three straight, Purdue would make eight wins. Yeah, I mean, I think when, and Kurt, I'll let you give your prediction, but I think, you know, when you look at the determinant of how successful this team is going to be, you know, a lot of the talk's been your Maryland and Rutgers are taking a step forward and they're going to be more competitive and you can't write those as an immediate win. But I look at a Maryland, their offense is good. They've got maybe one of the better, best receiving duos in the Big Ten outside of Ohio State, at least. Um, Dante Demas and uh, blanking on the other guy's name, but he's, he's good. And Tal- Talia's taking steps. Talia was a bit of a, a joke two years ago, but he's, he's more legit now. But their defense is terrible. And that kind of plays to our strengths. Of I think our defense can keep us in a spot to win games. It's just how good the offense clicks about whether they can actually bring those games home, which is a very interesting spot to be in as an IU football team that's used to putting up 35, 40 points and praying. But, Kurt? So, came to his prediction while at Knicks, and I'm standing by it. I think Illinois, dub. Idaho, dub. West Kentucky, dub. Cincinnati, I think that's a two-touchdown dub. I think they lost too many people, and I think we're pissed off at last year. Nebraska dub. I think Michigan, overtime dub. Love it. How many times have we gone close with Michigan? I think this is the year that we somehow don't fuck it up into the game, and we're going to get that dub. Is is it's going to be game game day? 6-0 IU game day? Yeah. And I think Maryland, we win. Rucker is a dub. I just I, – I can't – I can never – Rucker could be preseason number one, and we could be the bottom of the nation, and I will always predict a win against Rucker. I just – I can't picture losing to them. 8-0. And we dropped three straight. And yeah, 8-0 going November. I think we dropped three straight. And we get the win against Purdue. I think we see... Eight and four regular season. I I see nine win Deanna. I I think Michigan State is a nail-biter. Ohio State, they're just really fucking good this year, let's be honest. Penn State's really good. And like David's saying, I don't see them coming and losing in Bloomington this year. Um, I think one thing people are forgetting, too is that atmosphere in Bloomington is going to be different. Partly in thanks to uh, you know, a small brewery out in Colorado, you know, Coors, making a deal with IU. And I think that you're going to see the stands get a little more rowdy, a little more intense. And you're going to feel that home, that home crowd atmosphere this year. People are forgetting. Cheaper beers, which means more intoxicated fans, which means even more absurd things yelled at the other team's players. I think that you're going to see... Uh, different quarry this year by the end of the year and i'm excited to see the quarry nine. during the idaho game that'll be that'll be a fun one to be there for uh so I, I, i'm going nine wins ten wins if you include our bowl game and i'm sticking with i that. love where your head's at so i think you see double digit double digit win indiana for i think this would be the first time in program be. history it's our year if i'm correct so it's our year. Kurt, who are your X Factors? Yeah. And then we'll wrap up. X Factors this year, I think offense, it's just going to be Baselick. I think he gets a nod ahead of uh, Illinois. We're just going to see him. I think he'll do what we need to do, and he's going to make some good throws for us this year. I think defense, it's got to be Tevis. It's just got to be. Uh, I, I'm excited to see what he does this year. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think he does more in the line than like people even think he's going to do. I think he is the, he's the reason our defense does well this year. Granted, you know, we have Mullen back and healthy. We've got the other Mullen, so the Mullen duo uh, in my book. But, you know. I'm going with Tevis as my X-Factor right. on D. 
He's looking Tevis. On the offensive side of the ball, I want to say the entire offensive line, but I feel like that's kind of a cop-out. So I'm just going to go Matt Bedford. Um, I think he should or could be our best offensive lineman, potentially an NFL prospect. Um, I hope he takes a huge leap this year. And I think he, the rest of the offensive line, kind of as you talked before, David, I think they can take us pretty far. Um, they kind of control where our ceiling is going to be on that side of the ball. Defensively, Devin Monster Matthews. Um, more aggressive football on the defensive side. think puts a lot of pressure on your deep safeties. Um, Devin Matthews is an all-Big Ten guy. And I think... He has the capability this year to be someone who comes out of the year looking like an, oh my God, who is this guy? Borderline All-American. I, I, I would have been remiss if we hadn't mentioned Monster on, on, a, on the podcast. I mean, it's you can't talk an hour about IU football without mentioning him. I think his production is arguably the most underrated in, in the conference. He's a stalwart on that back line for us. Who are you thinking? I love that pick. My, uh, my X factor. I, I think, you know, I think it does all tie back to the line at some point, but I think Sean Shivers, I think his ability to keep Dog. pressure off Baselick to move the chains. Um, and I think his ability to churn out some yards, keep defenses honest, keep some balance. is going to be key. I'm not sold on Josh Henderson. I think I'd be more surprised if he had a consistent role at the end of the year than not. I think it's way more likely that you see, hopefully, and I think it's better for the program, uh, Howland or Holloman and Lucas taking the snaps behind Shivers. Um, but I'm going to say Shivers. I think he needs to stay healthy, um, but I think he, I think he can be a difference maker. Um, and then on the de- defensive side of the ball, um, I actually am going to go Noah Pierre, um, less based off of who he is and more based off of, I think what they're going to ask him to be. Um, and I think if he can answer that call and be the Husky for us for, for 12 games this year and produce well, I think that will be a, a big determinant in the whole defense's success. I have no questions about the front seven really at all. Um, But I think the durability concerns along the secondary, particularly with Pierre Husky are big, but I think if he answers that call and he answered that call last year at corner, he can answer that call this year at Husky. um, I think the defense is top half of the big 10. I think that's reasonable to think. Um, were you guys surprised to see him as more stuff kept coming out as Husky won? I was. This this may have to be yeah, the fair. next podcast. Fair. Like I could go on forever about this, but yes. Well, well yes. Don't get do don't not get, get David, David started on the Husky position. I've I've deep rooted I've deep rooted. If David ever quit his day game. job. He could just be a husky coach. I might, I might pay Punt John Punt for his website, so I can, I can continue his work and start with that. R.I.P. R.I.P. Punt John Punt. All right. Well, does anyone have anything else for for season three? Well, folks, be on, be on the lookout for for potentially a secondary preseason review. But then also we will be back live again before Illinois with a more detailed breakdown of Illinois, our outlook, our, our predictions. Um, you know, I think we get written as overly optimistic and I think, you know, we get a lot of fun out of this podcast, but I think this is a year where we are incredibly genuine that I think the, the ceiling of this team is being way more undersold than it should be. Um, and I think we couldn't be more optimistic and excited about what this what this year could be for the long-term trajectory of Indiana football. Kurt, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, 
Nine win Indiana before the bowl game this year. That's Nine win Indiana before 2023. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I will leave you with an L E motherfucking O. Love each other, baby.